We hear a lot in the news recently about potential or necessary regime changes. A man loves to have influence. A man ever since the fall, if you know anything about human history, loves to have global influence. Think about that. Think about the empires of the world since sin came into the world. I think the first attempt at a global empire was Babylon, wasn't it? Remember the Tower of Babel? Um, There was one person over that whole movement. Remember the Egyptian Empire? The Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire. There's something about fallen man that just loves to rule the world. And all of these global efforts really stemmed from the ideologies and the personalities of one man. And then other men after him. Well, we're no different in our world. Fallen man still loves to rule the world. But for our lives, spiritually speaking, before we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were ruled by a dark despot, weren't we? The Bible says that our whole nature, our whole person was governed by what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 calls the God of this world. He loves to run your world. He used to be pretty successful. But as we studied in Romans chapter 5, when you come to know Christ as your Savior, there is a regime change. Whereas before, outside of Christ, we were governed by the God of this world, Satan himself. In Christ now, we're governed by God in Jesus Christ. And it is an exclusive government. It's an exclusive government. And this government, though, is a government that loves life, spiritual life. It loves integrity and nobility. It loves holiness and the quality of life that holiness can bring to the believer. As a matter of fact, our lives now in Jesus Christ, given to us by God, are governed by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And he loves to work in our lives in such a way where we demonstrate his name. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And we enjoy this life in the Spirit, don't we? We... we, We count our blessings and name them one by one every day, every week, every month, every year, multiple times because we are amazed at the power of God's grace to bring about this regime change in our life and all of its spiritual benefits. To be sure, it's intended to be a totalitarian reign, but it's the opposite of the way that fallen man or Satan would rule. Under God, It's a life that's abundant and free in Jesus Christ. And we are free to be governed fully by the Holy Spirit and exude his character, which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness and self-control and so on and so on and so on. 
Okay. Governed by the Spirit of God. As we've been studying in Romans chapter 8, all of the ways that God has secured us in Jesus Christ, all the ways that he preserves our lives practically and then eternally by the Spirit of God in Jesus Christ. And this morning I'd like to cover with you verses 5 to 13. Verses 5 to 13 will be our immediate context this morning. Alvin J. McLean and some of you have purchased his commentary on this book, and I would encourage you to do that if you've not already. Um, he explains in his commentary that the Apostle Paul loves to teach by way of compare and contrast in Romans chapter 8. And we'll find that in particular here in these verses 5 to 13. We will learn about life in the Spirit compared to life in the flesh in these verses. We began to learn last week by way of contrast in verses 1 to 4, the law of the spirit of life compared to the law of sin and death. Today, we'll learn life in the flesh as compared to life in the spirit. In verses 14 to 17, we'll learn about the spirit of adoption rather than the spirit of bondage. In verses 18 to 25, we'll learn about present sufferings compared to future glory. In verses 26 to 30, we'll learn what we do now, right? excuse me, what we know now and what we don't know now. In verses 31 to 39, we'll learn that when God is for us, nothing or no one could be against us. So this is how Paul, this is one way, this is just one way that he teaches us about how God has preserved us and secured us in Jesus Christ. By way of compare and contrast, there's a few examples, and that's one example this morning that we'll learn in verses five to 13 again, life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. Right. So for today, I wanna to discuss with you the blessings of beginning to understand how joyful and powerful living life in the spirit is compared to our old way of life before we knew Jesus Christ in the flesh. So our first major section of the chapter began in verse one, right. and we agreed along with many other good men of scripture that understand it, that uh, the word no condemnation in Christ Jesus is really the heading for the whole chapter and the rest of the chapter is meant to support that secure, preserved reality that we have in Jesus Christ. And we looked at four major points in verses one to four last week together in relationship to that no condemnation. If you remember back a couple weeks, we gave a title to verses five to 13, and it was no contention, right? The first major section, verses one to four, no condemnation. In this particular section, we'd labeled it no contention. And if you can hang on with me here for the next uh, three or four minutes, I wanna explain exactly what it means because it's gonna take a, a little bit of astuteness here to understand exactly what it means when we say no contention. Now, no is a completion term, isn't it? It's not like some, it's not a probably, <laughs> it's not a I think so, it says no, contention. And I wanna explain that, but you're gonna to have to hang on so you really understand it. Uh, and hopefully we'll do a good enough job explaining it for your understanding. This grouping of verses details for us the reality of what our life both now and in the future looks like because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives in Christ. 
I've chosen the words, no contention, to relay the heart that the Apostle Paul has for us here. No, he's not saying that life will be without its spiritual struggles practically. But he intends to build upon what he's begun foundationally in verses one to four, only narrowing his thoughts to the blessings of what the Holy Spirit has omnipotently done for us in Christ at salvation. From an omnipotent standpoint, and for those of you who are newer believers, omnipotent just, seems, just means all-powerful. From an omnipotent standpoint, once the believer is saved, there remains no condemnation and now no contention regarding the nature, very important word we'll discuss a little bit, the nature of the believer's spiritual condition and personal reality. In the eyes of the Holy Spirit, he knows what he's done in the believer's heart to secure us in Jesus Christ. And from the Holy Spirit's standpoint, there will never be any contention regarding the believer's spiritual standing in Christ because we have been declared righteous in Christ by God himself. We'll find out later that the Holy Spirit of God is an interceder in this chapter. What does he intercede? What does he go before God and pray for on our behalf? Uh, he prays, what we'll learn is he prays that we come to a full understanding of the word of God. The intercession of Christ is different than the intercession of the Holy Spirit. They both intercede for us, but in this context, the Holy Spirit's purpose for intercession, he goes before the Father with much groanings that we cannot utter, and when we're groaning over not being able to understand part of God's word, the harder parts to understand, you can be assured the Holy Spirit's way ahead of us, already praying with groanings before the Father that we would understand the whole will of God. And that makes sense, doesn't it? The Bible says that he's our advocate, he's our comforter, and he's our instructor. He's our illuminator. What does illumination mean? The ministry of the Spirit. He wants to take the truth of God's word and make it significant to the believer's heart. So it should be no, uh, no surprise to us that he's always before the throne of God praying for us that we would understand from milk to meat and everything in between. He's a good spirit of God in that regard. So omnipotently he's regenerated us and omnipotently he views us from the standpoint of the Father. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit doesn't view us from our standpoint, he views us from the standpoint of the Father. We're completely secure, we're completely preserved, and this is the nature of our standing in the Spirit. And so his ministry then can become practically effectual just because of what the Holy Spirit knows he's already omnipotently done in the believer's heart. This may sound like a silly illustration. It might mean more to the men than to the women, except for those ladies who are avid football fans. Professional athletes are often asked to do charity work in the community. Not long ago on television, I was, walk, I was watching a large offensive lineman doing charity work at a local hospital. And this large offensive lineman was handed this premature infant, right? And uh, 
that's an amazing sight, isn't it? I mean, um, the look of compassion on his face, how that little child could melt the heart of that big, massive human being, right? But when you looked at that little premature infant in his hand, right, and then in his arms, the baby was enveloped by his body, and there was, that baby probably would not be more secure physically in their day than when they were in the hands of that offensive lineman, right? Now, when you think about that practically, and again, I know it's a silly illustration. When you think about that practically, think about the grip and the understanding from an omnipotent standpoint then. When God saves you, he holds you, he keeps you, and we have to remember that there's the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right? All three of them have omnipotent salvation ministry in your heart the moment you're born again and for all of eternity. There's not one of those members of the Godhead by their nature that's less omnipotent than the other. So we look at verses five to 13, we're again viewing this from the viewpoint of an omnipotent spirit who knows what he's done in your heart. So by God's grace, you will persevere by what he knows that he's done in your heart. That's just what God's grace does and how it operates. So what I wanna do is outline and rehearse a number of things here that are reality in our Christian lives today because of what the Holy Spirit has done for us. All of the truth that we've received, remember, by way of foundation and setting in verses one to four, I want to specifically recall at this moment as we head into verses five to 13, just by way of quick rehearsal, what did we learn in verses one to four? We learned what God did for us in Jesus Christ. Remember I said last time we were together how many times we're passive in verses one to four and God is active? Do you remember that? Let's rehearse those real quickly. Verse one, there's no condemnation. Well, who declared that? God did in Jesus Christ. The text goes on to say in verses one through four, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the law has freed you. The law of Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ, it freed you from the law of sin and death. Verse three, for what the law weakened by the flesh was powerless to do, God has done. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the sake of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse four, so that the righteous decree of the law might be fulfilled in us who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The righteous decree of the law of the spirit of life in Christ might be fulfilled in us. We're passive in every one of those things. This is how God's grace operates. Remember, it's omnipotent grace. So when it changes you, it knows what it's changed in you. And each member of the Godhead now becomes instrumental in our lives to helping us practically achieve what the Godhead knows has already happened to us. It's, 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 it's so simple and yet so infinite and, and divine, it's amazing. Right? So, what do we understand? Omnipotence did what only it can do on our helpless behalf. God the Spirit has given us life more abundant in Christ Jesus. And today, I want to continue to rehearse a few more blessings that 
would define for us what a spiritually abundant life really is. And isn't that what Jesus said he came to give? I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. So Romans chapter 8 is really packed full of abundant blessings, of an abundant life for us, secured and preserved for us by our God, our Creator, and our Savior. So let's trace together two main and simple thoughts in verses 8 to 13 in the passage before us. And these thoughts are this. What does it mean to live life in the flesh, and what does it mean to live life in the Spirit? Several certainties we must understand about this section of Romans chapter 8 before we dive into the verses. The word flesh, as you're going to read it in verses 8 to 13, we're going to confine it to that context for this morning. The word flesh here describes our life before we are saved, not our battle with darkness after we're saved. I need to make that very clear. I would encourage you to pick up a commentary by Douglas Moo and read an excursus he has in his commentary about the semantic domain of the word flesh in the New Testament. All that means are big terms that just simply mean this. The word flesh, every time it's mentioned in the New Testament, doesn't refer to our fallen nature. It can refer to a time of or a state of life. In this, among other things, in this particular context, the word flesh means a state of living. So it describes for us, not our battle now, it describes for us the before we came to Christ part of our life. Another thing I want us to understand before we dive in these verses is this. The word spirit, as we mentioned last week, is mentioned, the Greek word pneuma is mentioned 21 times in chapter 8. 19 of those times in Romans chapter eight are used to describe the Holy Spirit of God and his ministry to us to give us life. And that life in this passage describes the polar opposite reality of living life in the flesh as an unsaved person. A third thing I want us to look at, and we'll look at more exhaustively here in just a moment. We are compelled to note the word mind, M-I-N-D. The word mind in this context. Because the word mind is going to teach us just in the Greek grammar, that there's two mindsets. Life in the flesh, life as an unsaved person, and then the mindset of life in the spirit. We need to understand that. We will a little bit more here in a second. And of course, we're never going to forget that verses 5 to 13 comes on the heels of verses 1 to 4. And we're still in the omnipotent activity of the Godhead of what they've done for us on our behalf. So let's learn some more here as we continue on. Let's begin to trace the obvious patterns of each kind of life. Life is an unsaved person, and then life is a Christian. Life in the flesh. Life as an unsaved person. Now, Uh, let's read these verses real quickly together, okay? Um, I know we read through the whole chapter um, last week, but let's read these verses for a little context. Verse five, for those who are according to the flesh, remember that's the statement of someone who's not saved yet. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit on things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit, that's the saved person, 
is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit now, that's one of the uses for human spirit, not the spirit of God. Your human spirit has been made alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, verses 12 and 13 in the grammar of the New Testament is really the conclusion of verses 5 to 11. Okay? And so we're going to handle that as our conclusion in just a few minutes. But let's read. Understanding these things, and we know that from the Greek words that give us so then in verse 12. The purpose statement for verses 5 to 11 is now given to us in verses 12 to 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh. We're not under obligation to being an, living like an unsaved person. That parts of our lives is over. To live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh... You're going to die. And that word die here is not just a physical death, but a spiritual one. But, powerful world there, isn't it? If you're living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body and you are experiencing, literally, you're already experiencing life. Okay? So, let's go back here and understand this word mind because it's used here four times only in verses five, six, and seven, but it sets for us really our train of thought for the rest of these verses. Right? It's used once in verse five, twice in verse six, and once in verse seven. Now, I'm gonna be a little bit more detailed here to build your, up your encouragement because again, this is all something that God's done for us in Christ Jesus, this life in the spirit compared to life in the flesh. So let me tell you this. The 26 times in the New Testament, uh, the basic word for mind is used. The basic word for mind is used. And it's just the Greek word for now. 23 of those 26 times, the Apostle Paul uses that word mind in his writings in the New Testament. 23 of all of the 26 times. It's really interesting here that the word for mind is not used in these four usages in verses five, six, and seven. It includes the root word, phreneo, but the Greek word here is phronema. Doesn't mean anything to you but this, It's talking about a way of life, a mindset. So your New American Standard Bible actually translates this Greek word probably most correctly. And I think it's very important for us to understand that grammatically because then we're really able to say confidently that when Paul talks about the mind in the flesh, he's talking about the thinking and the living of an unsaved person. This is a mindset. In other words, they can't help themselves but think this way and to live this way. Now, I want to qualify something as we head on. Everyone that does not know Jesus Christ is still created in God's image, correct? And it's only 11, 16, and then 30 seconds. So hang on with me here, right? I know there's a lot of data, but this is really, really helpful data, I hope, right? 
everyone that is not saved yet is still created in God's image, which means they can still do moral and civic good. But moral and civic good cannot and does not define who they are. Because they're still under the regime of a dark despot. They can do good things because they're made in the image of God, but they cannot be comprehensively and fully known as spiritually good until they're in Jesus Christ. Because before they can do practically good in a spiritual sense, they must be declared perfectly good by owning Jesus. So after you come to know Jesus as your savior, God looks at you and he doesn't see you anymore, he just sees his son, Jesus Christ. He declares you perfect in Jesus Christ. Then you're able to do spiritual good because you're in Jesus. Before Christ, the only reason we're able to do good is because we're created in God's image, but that spiritual good cannot, it's not that it will not, it cannot define our lives, all right? So this is the Greek understanding here. This is a mindset. This is a way of life. One author said this about the Greek word phronema. It is our fundamental orientation, the convictions and our heart attitude that steers the ultimate course of our life. So, after, before we know Christ, we've got an ultimate course, don't we? Underneath an ultimate dark regime. We trust Christ as our savior, turn from our sin, place our faith in him alone, and he transforms us by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we're born again, what happens? We're under a regime of life. Amen. And joy, <laughs> and happiness. And we're only able to do spiritual good because of the ultimate divine good that resides within us. And that's the person of Christ and the Holy Spirit. I want to notice something here as we continue, All right? Within the context, we understand some certainties about these two mindsets. I want to highlight for you very quickly this morning six vices of the fleshly mindset. Six vices of the fleshly mindset. And what we're going to do with both the life in the flesh, life in an unsaved person, and life in the spirit, life as a saved person, we're going to give each one the same outline. So we're going to look at the nature of the flesh, the function of the flesh, and the reality of the flesh. And then we're going to jump over to the spirit and we're going to look at the nature of life in the spirit, the function of life in the spirit, and the reality of life in the spirit. So let's go back to the flesh, and let's look at the nature, function, and reality of life in the flesh. And we're going to highlight just six simple things about what we were before we came to know Christ as our Savior. And I want to remember, I want to, I want to call this to our attention too. Remember, Paul's talking to the Romans. This is a healthy church. This is a strong church. In 16 chapters, he doesn't bring one indictment against this church. They're growing well. So when he outlines for them what they used to be in life and the flesh, it was meant to be an encouragement to them, not a warning to them. He wanted the Roman people to celebrate by way of reminder of what they used to be. But now 
you're in life in the spirit, and we're gonna finish and highlight that which is most important as well. So remember that. I preached to you this morning, uh, not these verses too, because I think that, that you are a tremendously flawed people in Christ. I don't think you're flawed at all in Christ. Generally, I believe we have a church that's doing everything they can to the individual to try to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to explain this to you as I think the Roman hearers would have heard it from Paul. All right. So let's be encouraged by way of reminder here real quickly. What are these vices about the mindset of the flesh? Well, verse 6 tells us that it's death, doesn't it? It's death. Verse seven tells us that it's hostile towards God. It also tells us that it would never be subject to the word of God, the law of God, apart from a moving of the Holy Spirit to change its mindset. That's the nature. That's the nature of life in the flesh. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. While we could do good things, we refuse to be called godly. And have that be the defining adverb of our life. We may have appreciated part of the word of God, but we certainly weren't going to embrace the whole of the word of God. This is, this is all kind of, parts of it are just kind of weird to me. I get the part where, you know, Jesus could break bread and fish and feed a few thousand miles, but boy, I don't, I don't get that part, though, of that flood. That just kind of baffles my mind. I think the flood was a metaphorical story to tell us something else about the human condition. You know, I get the fact that maybe Paul was put in prison because he preached too much about this Jesus guy, but boy, it's really hard for me to believe that we were created and we didn't evolve. Okay, no. See, that's the mind in the flesh. The mind in the flesh will not subject itself to the whole of Scripture. Okay? It'll always be speculative of it and think suspectly of it. All right? The function. Verse, the latter part of verse 7 says that it's it's an incapable, it's an unable lifestyle when it comes to spiritual things. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is even unable. Without the help of the Spirit, some things that it's not that they, again, they won't do, they just can't do. So what's its reality? The Spirit of God, verse 9, does not belong to him. So for the life and the flesh, again, we're under a different regime, a different dark despot. We're, we're the, really the property of another. And the vices of the flesh outlined for us in Galatians 5.19 are really those things that define us, even though we can do periodic civic and moral good because we're created in God's image. Every, 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 every person is, believer or unbeliever, okay? The reality of life according to the flesh does not mean that people... will primarily be known in public as people of the flesh. 
many people in our community that are not known as being people of the flesh. Let's think about it honestly. There's some standout law enforcement citizens in our community. There's some standout politicians in our community. There's some standout educators in our community. There's some standout first responders in our community. They would never be known as people whose lives were defined by the flesh, but yet they're still under the regime of darkness. What really defines personally someone who's in the flesh? It's not what they do in the public eye. It's what their life is like in private. What is their mind set? What can't they achieve? They can't achieve life with power over sin. They're always going to be given to some vice in private, even though they may not be known for that vice in public. And that's what makes this so amazing because only God, your creator, could really omnisciently, all-knowingly know exactly what your mindset is. No human being can. But God knows. He knows your thoughts before you think them, and so he's going to know your words, which are just spoken thoughts, before you speak them. He knows you. He created you. And his eyes are roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for someone that will honor him. And the only way you can honor him is when you come to Jesus who can change your life by omnipotent grace. So think about that. This is what makes the gospel so hard to hear. This is what Paul says in part is why the gospel is a stumbling block to many people. Because when they hear that they can be known as morally and civically good, but yet damned to eternal condemnation, they can't grasp that. I didn't say they won't, they can't. The Spirit of God's got to arrest their attention and say, you know what? Jesus died for what you are in private. He died for what you can't control. Guys like Tony Dungy, right? Former, I think a former football coach of the Indianapolis uh, Colts, right? You read his book, he's a born again man. What have his players primarily known for? In practice or a game, staff, players, concessions, people, they've never heard him cuss one time. Right? Where does that happen? How, how does that happen? I don't know if you remember a guy that played for the Naval Academy named David Robinson. He went on to have a Hall of Fame career with the San Antonio Spurs, born-again Christian. There was another fellow that played for the uh, Los Angeles Lakers years ago, and they both were on the cover of Sports Illustrated some time ago, and the theme was, all right, virginity. How in the world can you be this well-known as an athlete, right, 
and, 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 and endeavor in your mind never to be with a lady until the night you're married. How in the world? How in the world? Well, they both gave their testimonies in that article and they said, really, Jesus is the only way that we are not living that lifestyle. Amen. Right? Whether it be alcoholism, whether it be drug addiction, which is not a disease, it's sin. For all of us that are wrapped up and have great concern for people affected by the opioid pandemic in our own city, it's not a disease. It's a sin problem that only God and his omnipotence can change in someone's life. Education is teaching people that this is an education problem. We need to teach, we need to warn, we need to help. And the more we educate and the more we know and the more we try to help, what happens? The worse it becomes. People need Christ. Amen. They need to be born again, bless their souls. Only he can bring power over that ridiculous ability of that satanic drug in their lives. We've got former heroin addicts in this auditorium. Ask them why they haven't returned. Jesus. Right? We've got former strippers in this auditorium. We've got former prostitutes in this auditorium. We have former drug dealers in this auditorium. Ask them why they haven't returned. They've had a regime change. Life in the spirit. Now, those are all some pretty dark vices. But even for the person, again, it's known for moral and civic goodness. Even God knows omnisciently what they are in private and what they can't gain victory over. Right? That's life in the flesh. That's the mind set. Everyone desperately needs Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay? Are we clear? So that's the nature, the function, and the reality of life in the flesh. The reality of life in the flesh does not mean that that leaves us without opportunity to know and experience what life in the spirit is, right? We had a sweet saint stand a few moments ago that understands the compare and contrast now, life in the flesh and now living life in the spirit. So let's talk about five specific realities of life in the spirit. We looked at six vices and let's divide these five things up into the nature, function, and reality of life in the spirit, and we'll close. The nature of life in the spirit begins in verse five. The mindset of things of the spirit lead to life. And by the way, this is speaking in its context, first of all, of eternal life. Remember, this is what God the spirit omnipotently has done for us. He's regenerated us. Paul talks about eternal life earlier in the book, doesn't he? Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. The payment for sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It says here also in verse 6 that life in the spirit is a life of peace. And by the way, that's not practical everyday tranquil peace. That's positional peace. That's Romans 5.1. We all have experienced peace with God 
in Jesus Christ. God has made us at complete and perfect peace with him when we know Jesus Christ. We're no more his enemies. We're under a different regime. We're under the regime of life and peace in Jesus Christ. And verses 9 and 11 tell us that we've been given a great gift as well, which is the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So those are three of five blessings here as we continue on. What is the function of life in the Spirit? Verse 10, we're able to live life on the foundation of forensic evidence. We're able to live life because the Spirit within us is alive because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. That was 321 to end of chapter 5. Remember, justification. Because of Christ's righteousness, our spirit, and remember, this is one of two times of 21 times Numa's mentioned that refers to the human spirit. So within the context, our human spirit is alive because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own righteousness. And the spirit is alive to do what, folks? To learn and to apply doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Learn of the Spirit of God, His person, His nature, His Word. And as we learn of the person of God, our spirit is alive because of righteousness. It's alive to do what? Embrace the Word. First of all, regarding the person of the ministry, the person, nature, and ministry of the Spirit of God in our lives. And then secondly, to know the character of the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. This is what we've been alive to do. John Murray in his commentary, as quoted, I believe, by James Montgomery Boyce said this, the believer's once for all death to sin and the law does not free him from the necessity of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. So we're made alive with the inevitable possibility and probability of growing in the spirit. So what's our reality? Verse 11, resurrection life. The regime of death, the regime of the flesh is death. The regime of the spirit, life in the spirit, assures us not just of eternal life, but physical life. All of us will die a physical death because of the effects of sin, but we've been given spiritual life in Christ Jesus. But how does Paul finish this before the conclusion of verses 12 and 13? He reminds us that we have eternal life, yes, but someday. Even though you're going to go in the grave because of sin, absent from the body, present with Christ, I'm even going to take care of your physical body. So what you're going to lose, you're going to gain back in resurrection power. Cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 26, right next to verse 11. A glorious uh, excerpt, the whole chapter is really, but that, chap that, that section of that chapter in specific about the, the nature and purpose and the joy of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection of the believer's life. So verse 12 and 13. So then, so what? We're not under obligation to the flesh. Why? Because God did something omnipotently in you to change you. I love the third word of verse 12. So then what? Brethren. He's not speaking to the Roman church, to people. Right? In this context, 
that are without Christ. He's speaking to a church that are in Christ. They'll say, wouldn't have called them brethren. But hopefully this is a sober warning to those of you who, who don't know Christ yet. What he says to the conclusion here, so then brethren, and you're not a brother yet, and you're still underneath the old regime, I trust the spirit of God will prick your heart and allow him to change you. You are under no obligation. The lifestyle change that comes from knowing Christ is a certainty. If you're gonna live by the Spirit, you'll live. And notice here, it's not until 12 and 13 where the Apostle Paul gets to your responsibility. Verses five to 11 is really about what God and the Spirit has done for us. Now, since he's done this, he can use words like you are. Verse 14, for if you are living according to the Spirit, you must, living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you are by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, folks, we're only able to do this life in the Spirit because of what the Spirit has done in us. There's no other explanation. Right? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, but once we have that faith, it produces works, doesn't it? We don't work to get our way to heaven. We're able to do spiritual things under the Spirit of God's influence because we're already members and citizens of heaven in Christ Jesus. So, believers, we've got to spend and continue to invest a lot of time in what it means to walk and live life in the Spirit just like the Romans were doing. Keep it up. Keep indoctrinating yourselves personally, collectively, corporately. And then learn, keep learning to translate that into light in the community. And I think there's probably still a handful of folks, though it be small, even in this morning's message that are still under the old regime of the flesh. Okay. I just would ask you to consider the compare and the contrast of what it means to be in the flesh compared to the spirit. Notice the clear and obvious difference. And then I would ask you to allow the spirit of God to transfer you from the old regime to the new. Let's pray together.